Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Obviously today we begin a series on the Lord's Prayer. It will be broken down into segments. And this morning we'll just deal with the opening phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. Next week, hallowed be thy name. Uh, Seven phrases from the Lord's Prayer. We're looking forward to the series. Hope you are as well. Uh, One of the things we're going to do is we're actually going to have a different version of the Lord's Prayer read together every week. So today, that version of the Lord's Prayer was kind of a combination between the Old King James and the Book of Common Prayer. And in weeks that follow, we'll use a different version uh, for our reading of the Lord's Prayer. And you'll notice some distinct differences. Um, And I'll mention some of those differences uh, a little later on as we think about the Lord's Prayer together. But speaking of prayer in a kind of um, not really highly spiritual way, I, I don't know if you noticed that Professor Horn, our choir director, was sporting his IU gear this morning. He has a, an IU sweater on. Uh, that's because he has to sing the national anthem at the game this afternoon. It's a noon game. Um, just letting you know, he didn't have time to go home and change clothes, so he came prepared. Um, and I was just wondering, um, Brian, if maybe just real quietly you could say a prayer for IU basketball before you sing. I mean, nobody would have to know, um, but those are dark days over there, so uh, maybe, we could, maybe we could use a prayer. Um, I, I want to begin by mentioning something um, about myself, and I want to say this. I find the Lord's Prayer to be very encouraging. Now, you might say, well, that's not just about you. I know It seems pretty generic, but I find it to be very encouraging, and here's why. It is easier, I think I've made this confession before, it is easier for me to study than to pray. I'm just a student. I'm a teacher. I'm a reader. I research. That's primarily the way I learn. So can I say it's my first language? Study? Sometimes I wonder if it's okay that you all actually pay me to study the Bible. That just seems wrong, right? It's way too much joy that I extract out of my work when I study the Bible to prepare for messages on Sunday morning. It's just my first language. I love to study. I'm not saying I don't love to pray, I do. Nor am I saying I don't pray, you'll be happy to know that, I, I do. But when it comes to those two spiritual disciplines, study and prayer, 
I am more inclined towards study. So why is this prayer encouraging to me? Well, first of all, because it's words, right? Gives me words to work with. But second of all, because it was the disciples who asked for it. And I'm routinely encouraged by the disciples, their honesty. In other words, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. I want to believe that that's an admission like I just made to you. Lord, it's not my first language. I need help. Lord, I'm inclined to do lots of other things, but I'm not so inclined towards prayer as I ought to be. Lord, I'm not sure exactly how I ought to pray. Lord, please teach us to pray. I'm always encouraged by the disciples, especially Peter, who was always sticking his foot in his mouth, or Thomas, who struggled with faith. I love John, but I don't relate to him as well. He just seems too righteous to me. But Peter and Thomas, I get them. I love the disciples, and I love the request. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus seemed to understand their need immediately, and he gave them an answer. And it's an answer that has lasted, of course, for 2,000 years. And that's often the way it was, isn't it, in the New Testament? In the Gospels, Jesus answered their question, and their question was ours, and their answer 2,000 later, 2,000 years later is also ours. So as we consider the Lord's Prayer this morning, I want to say a few things about the context of the Lord's Prayer, the place in which it's set in the Scriptures. First of all, it's two places in the Scripture. One is in the Gospel of Luke, and the other is in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're slightly different. That's not unusual in the Gospels. You have a different window into the words, the thoughts, the heart of Jesus. I don't find those windows into the life of Jesus a contradiction. I find them illuminating. And in this case, the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke has a bit of a different setting than the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, the setting is related to two examples. And the examples are this. If you had a friend, and that friend in the middle of the night came to you in need, and you were already in bed, and your kids were tucked away, and he pounded on the door and he said, I need some bread, it would be inconvenient, right? especially back then where everybody slept in the same room. You'd have to step over everybody to go to the door and to answer the request. But if your friend came to you in the night and asked for bread, what would you do? Well, the answer is obvious. You would get up and give him bread. You would give him his daily bread because he had a need. The other example in the context of Luke's gospel is suppose a a son asked a father for bread. Would he give him a stone? In other words, what kind of father is that? The point is, you have a heavenly father, a father in heaven, to whom you could say, Lord, I need my daily bread. Lord, I've got a need. 
don't give me the opposite of what I need. I trust you. In the context of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is in the setting where Jesus is speaking about other spiritual disciplines. One of those is almsgiving, or what we just consider to be charitable giving. By the way, in that Jewish culture, almsgiving was of the highest order. As a matter of fact, some people said that almsgiving was more important than prayer itself. I think in our contemporary culture, we have put it way down the list. If we give or get around to it, we'll give to the poor. In the first century sec- section of the world, it was like at the top of the list. You give to the poor. Whoever has need, you supply their need. And also, fasting was listed in the context of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. That too considered to be of an incredibly high importance in the spiritual disciplines of those who followed God. And then the third thing that's discussed in the spiritual disciplines, of course, is prayer in Matthew's Gospel. And in each of those cases, whether it's fasting or almsgiving or prayer, there's a warning. I'll call it a warning because it's basically the do's and don'ts of all three things. And in effect, to summarize all three, Jesus says, here's what I want you to remember. You can turn all three of those very good things, those righteous things, you can turn them into something that's unrighteous. And how do you turn those righteous things into something that's unrighteous? Through pretentiousness, through show, through making a case that your righteousness is better than others. And then it denigrates the very righteousness you're called to. Your motivation for your righteous acts are as important as the righteous acts themselves. That's the context of Matthew's prayer in the Lord's Prayer. First, the context. Second, the culture. Something to remember about the culture into which Jesus was speaking is this. Everybody prayed. Everybody prayed. Not so much our culture, I realize that, but it was an expectation. Prayer was an expectation, it was assumed, and it was routinely public. Not only was it public, but it was private. The expectation is that you paused three times a day to pray. Anybody who was a follower of God knew that, and anybody who was a follower of God, truly a follower of God, did that. You wouldn't miss your three times a day. It didn't have to be lengthy, but you would stop three times a day. You see that illustrated early on in the life of the church in the book of Acts when Peter and John are on their way to the temple at the time of prayer. It happened all the time. Daily prayers were routine, not only in the Jewish culture, but in other religious religious traditions. And of course, for many religious traditions, routine prayer is extremely important. In the Islamic tradition, one cannot imagine really being devoted to that religion without going through your daily prayers. You just can't imagine doing it. You can't imagine following Allah without praying routinely. 
I'll never forget one time I was on my way back from a mission trip. It was either from Turkey or Pakistan. And uh, on the way back, right in the middle of everything. Now, when I say right in the middle of everything, unfortunately for this gentleman, it was on our descent, I believe, into New York. And it was the time of prayer, according to his watch, and he was Muslim. And he went out into the aisle with his prayer mat and began his prayers. And the person who was the stewardess tried to move him on. He was not having it. He was praying because it was his duty to do so. And I looked at it. It was a bit inconvenient. Actually, to be honest, I needed to go up and go to the bathroom at that point. Second, I knew I needed to do that because they were going to tell us all to sit down because we were on our initial descent. But he was unmoved. The stewardess tried to move him along, and one individual who was a younger man, clearly Islamic, rebuked her. In other words, and said, I don't care what the rules are, you let him pray. There's a devotion in many religions to prayers. There's an expectation in many religions to prayer. And I want to suggest that Jesus stepped into that expectation, which I do believe, honestly, was higher than than it is for us now. Perhaps that's sad. Jesus stepped into that culture and he said, I'll teach you how to pray because it's that important. Of course, it doesn't make any difference which culture you're in, right? Prayer always exists. It might be a little bit more discreet, but it's always there. I'll never forget a reference politically charged reference that President Ronald Reagan made during his campaign. And it came up about prayer in public schools. And he joked, as Reagan often did, you know, there's never going to be the absence of prayer in public schools as long as you have math examinations. (laughs) The the point is, people are going to pray, okay? (laughs) They're going to pray quietly. They're going to pray discreetly. And often, you know this, often they pray even when they don't believe, when they're skeptical, when their back's to the wall, when they feel like there's no other way out. How many times have you heard a phrase that sounds like this? Oh God, if you're out there, please. Yeah, we all pray. But Jesus said, let me teach you about it. So first we have this context, and then we have the culture. And then Jesus paints a contrast as he teaches them about prayer. He said, you know around you, in your culture, the pagan approach to prayer is repetitious. It's like an incantation. They say it over and over and over again, as if with many words they will get what they ask for. Don't be like that. That's not a proper mode of prayer. Furthermore, he said, in your particular religious tradition, you know that there's an expectation if you're really going to pray. You pray publicly, and you pray loud, and you pray long, and everybody notices. Jesus says, don't be like that. 
Now, let's remind ourselves, Jesus is not suggesting any prohibition against persistent prayer. When you think of Luke chapter 18, you remember the persistent widow that Jesus commended in her relationship with the king and we as a commendation to prayer. What he's suggesting is not lack of persistence. What he's suggesting is it's inappropriate to have repetitive incantations that almost seem like they're magical. If I just say it the right way, if I say it fast enough, if I say it loud enough, if I say it long enough, maybe then God will hear. I, um, I'm going to avoid the temptation to make an application to some contemporary approaches to prayer and worship. You connect the dots. Fourth, uh, what are the characteristics of the Lord's Prayer? First is the phrase that we'll uh, take a look at today, and that is our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven. It's personal. It's very personal. And as Jewish believers, the disciples would understand the personal nature of this expression. It's relational. It's a child to a father. And that father is in heaven. In order to even broach the subject, we have to acknowledge that the opening of the prayer itself, for some people, is a stumbling block. Our Father. But the intent of our Father, who art in heaven, it's not to exclude other relationships. As a matter of fact, God is likened to a mother that embraces and covers her children like under the wings of a hen. Jesus is referred to as our elder brother, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. But here's the thing I want to remind us of. No matter what the category that we use, it's always fraught with difficulty. That's the way language is. There's problems with any personal language, whether it's mother or brother or sister or friend. You have to know that in any of those relationships, someone who is here today or another time has a story of abuse. Abuse from a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend. Betrayal and any number of other things associated with those categories. 
So, for that reason, I want to suggest that we don't allow a bad image that is part of our personal experience with an earthly father to destroy the perfect image of God, our heavenly father. It's just inappropriate. Let's work past it, shall we? If it's our difficulty. And one of the main reasons is because, quite frankly, in the Christian tradition, it is just proper to call God our Father. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is. Period. So I won't apologize for addressing God as Father. And I hope if you have trouble with it, you'll enter into it. Because it's good. It really is good. So now on a more practical level, speaking of God our Father, who art in heaven, how should we allow the Lord's Prayer, the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, to inform our relationship with God? I think first is to remind ourselves of a few things. Let's remind ourselves of this. A good father, a good father will listen to anything. A good father will not say to his child, now we can't talk about that. Now you may think there are times where such words are appropriate, but in general, can you imagine trying to be the best father possible and telling your kids, I'm not talking to you about that? I can't. Honestly, I wanted my kids to talk to me about everything. I wanted to hear everything about what they were thinking. I wanted to know their every need. I wanted them to be honest with me. I wanted them to feel as though it was the one place in the world beyond all other places where they could open their heart. That's what I wanted. I'm not sure I always achieved the objective, but what I want to say is that's a good father. Nothing should be too small to share with dad. Nothing. I love the story um, that's told of G.K. Chesterton, who on occasion was talking about prayer and referred to intimacy with God. And uh, a lady greeted him and said, Mr. Chesterton, I just don't think it's proper to bother God with the little things. And G.K. Chesterton looked at her and said, my dear madam, with God they're all little things. In other words, even your big things. I, um, I'll never forget a, a particular occasion, speaking of IU basketball, um, the little things. It was, um, it was a 
particular football game that most of you should remember if you're from Indiana. It was the time where the Indianapolis Colts actually made it to the Super Bowl. And we were all very excited. But before they arrived to the Super Bowl, they had to go through the gauntlet, the evil empire called the New England Patriots. Sorry for a Patriots fan. And on their way in the attack of the evil empire, it looked like the story was just going to repeat itself. Somehow the New England Patriots were going to beat us again, and I was watching intently, my heart racing as if I had any vested interest in this. That's the thing that's so amazing about sports to me. The next day would be the same no matter what, but it didn't feel like it in that moment. I was just into this so much. You know, I, I got to admit, I'm screaming at the TV like it can hear me, right? And my wife was looking at me like I'm seven years old, which I was at the moment. At any rate, it was getting tight, and Peyton Manning was on the sidelines. And he dropped his head like this. Peyton Manning's usually looking at the playbook, and it looked like he was in deep prayer. And I thought, I bet you he's praying that they'll win the game so they can go to the Super Bowl. Afterwards, a reporter said to him, so Peyton, it looked like you might even have been praying over there on the sidelines. Is that really happening? He goes, yeah. I don't know if God really cares about that stuff, but I thought I'd go ahead and take the chance. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's in moments like that, right, that you realize it's okay. It's all right. Pray for the little things, even the things that don't seem to matter. So sec second, beyond the fact that a good father will listen to anything, a good father is always accessible. A good father is always accessible. I have to tell you, I had a wonderful father. And I know that helps me in my understanding of God, my Heavenly Father. But there was never any doubt in my mind, ever any doubt in my mind, that whatever my dad was doing, it was not as important as me. Never a doubt. Oh, he was busy. He wasn't always home. And I had to learn to respect that. Children do. But I knew that honestly, if I needed dad, I could just call on him. We didn't have cell phones back then. But if he'd had a cell phone, he would have taken my call. That was my dad, and I knew it. A good father is always accessible. He's always there for you. I've had many failings as a father. But I hope, I don't think my kids would describe that as one of my failings. I'd drop anything 
that I had to do to help them. Or let me be more pointed. I've been here for 22 years, and they're more important than this job. Third, a good father is always ready to give. That's the stone and the bread analogy that Jesus uses. I don't know of too many things in my life that I find greater delight in than giving to my kids. My problem is I would give too much because it brings me great joy. I want to help them out. I want to be there for them. I'm so excited that my daughter's getting married because it reduces my responsibility. Because I always want to be there for her. I'm always watching out for her. I'm always worried about her. I mean, I did my preparation for this sermon. I want to tell you ahead of time. So, don't fault me for this. But on Thursday night, I got in my daughter's car and drove all the way to Nashville 1.30 in the morning, got up the next morning and drove all the way to St. Petersburg to deliver her car, and five hours later got on a plane and flew back to Indianapolis. I'm not bragging. That's just what a dad does. Right? A father always wants to give to his children, and that's God, our Heavenly Father. A good father really wants to know what you're thinking. Sounds like the first thing I said, but I want to make it a little different. A good father really wants to know what you're thinking. Here's the application. God wants honesty from us. Pray as you are. Not as you think you ought to be. Pray as you are. Not as you think you ought to be. Don't hide your thoughts from God. How foolish is that? He can read our hearts anyway. But he wants us to express what we're truly thinking. All of this is about relationship, isn't it? Good relationships are built on consistent conversations. Sometimes folks complain about their relationship with their father, and one of the questions I always have, which I don't always speak, is to what extent did you contribute to the problem? Really? Let me put it another way. We approach our relationship with God as if it's all up to Him. We approach our relationship with God, unfortunately, like some people approach marriage. They say the words, they go through the commitment, and then the conversation ends. Are you kidding me? The commitment is an invitation to continued conversation, right? So this is relational, and it goes both ways. You can't expect everything from God and expect to be satisfied by God's presence if you never enter God's presence. 
It goes both ways, my friends. So what, what are some practical points of advice for us in prayer? I've had multiple opportunities to make these applications, maybe ad infinitum throughout the Lord's Prayer. But here's some practical advice, some of which I already mentioned. When you pray, don't try to impress other people. Most people get it anyway when you're trying to do that. You know? They get it. Don't pray to try to impress other people. Pray from the heart. Second, begin where you are and continue. Doesn't matter where you are. We're all beginners at some level. Begin where you are and continue and don't stop. Make it something that just always happens. You start out little, you start out slow, but you start. And you refuse to give up on it. And the third thing is, make it a habit. Make it a habit. One time when my son was quite young, um, I was his basketball coach, you know, those... um, those rec leagues and stuff like that, a lot of fun, great memories. And um, periodically he would ask me to play a game of horse or something. And, and one particular day we were playing horse and he was getting beat pretty bad. Um, I used to be able to play basketball pretty well too. But anyway, he, <laughs> he, he was getting beat pretty bad and I was just hitting him one right after another. And finally he just threw the ball down and he said, Dad... How can you be so good without ever practicing? And I do remember my response. And I said, but it's just muscle memory. I used to do it so much when I was your age that, I mean, it's not quite the same now at almost 60, but I don't even think it's just so automatic. You bend your knees, you set the ball, and you release. I don't know. It's just muscle memory. It's habit. You see the analogy, right? Make it like that. Make prayer that way. You know, in a different context, same point. When you've been married long enough and you have a good relationship, here's what often happens. I'll put it in the first person. It happens to me all the time. Something happens or I just see something. And the first thought in my mind is, I need to share that with Brenda. Nobody tells me to think that, right? I just see a wonderful sight, and I think, I need to share that with Brenda. That's what prayer ought to be like for us. It ought to be so natural for us in every situation. 
just to turn to God in prayer. In multiple ways, in multiple venues, silent or out loud, it ought to be just natural for us to say, Father, you got to hear this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the invitation. An invitation that is serious and from your heart. But an invitation is only as good as the RSVP. Lord, don't allow us to be negligent. Put the invitation on the table or the shelf or even on the refrigerator as a decoration. Help us to take the invitation seriously and to come to you in prayer with everything all the time as if you're absolutely the best father which you are. Amen.